everyone, and welcome to this episode of Epimonia's Safer Room Podcast. Epimonia is a company that was started in 2017 by Mohamed Malin, a Somali refugee living in the U.S. At Epimonia, we sell bracelets made out of life jackets worn by refugees on their dangerous journey across the Mediterranean Sea to Greece where the jackets are collected. All of our products are made by refugees in the U.S., and our profits go to our nonprofit partners who support refugees. Our bracelet is a symbol of strength for refugees living in the U.S., that no matter where you're from or how you got here, you are as much a part of our country and have just as much to offer as U.S.-born citizens. You can buy our products and learn more at epimonia.com. Every week, we interview a new guest to hear their take on the refugee crisis and hear what they're doing to help. The name Safer Room comes from a quote from U.S.-Iranian author Dina Nayeri, It is the obligation of every person born in a safer room to open the door when someone in danger knocks. Today's guest is London-based fashion designer who focuses on gender-fluid clothing, Team Khan. Team, hi, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, Could you start by just explaining yourself, what it is you do for work, and then after that we can get into questions about how you got into that work? Sure, I mean, thanks for having me. Um, So um, I'm a refugee in the UK. I have uh, been in the UK for quite a while now, 17 years, but I was only forced to claim asylum four years ago. Um, mm-hmm. It took a while to get my, my refugee status, about over three years. Um, so I have now been an entrepreneur on the turn um, cohort program I graduated last uh, this year during mm-hmm. the pandemic. And I've launched my brand as Team Can um, with a, a strap line, fabric has no gender, fashion is fluid, um, this uh, last year in November. Awesome, congratulations on that you know, recent graduation. And so before we talk more about your business now, how is it that you got into fashion and what has your journey been with fashion throughout your life that inspired you to get into this line of work? Uh, fashion for me, fabric has, uh, I was born and raised around fabric. Um, so my mom, who was a wedding dress designer. Um, so since the age, very age of six year old, I started helping my mom just to put like, elastic in trousers, uh, mm-hmm. store buttons and, um, you know, playing around with beads. Um, so at a very little age, at six, seven, I started stitching. Um, so for me, I've learned a lot from my mom. I've never really studied fashion. Um, mm-hmm. So that's how I've always wanted to, to launch my old brand. And um, all, of, all the clothes that I wear um, speaks very lot about me. And uh, for me, it's, 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 a, it's a way of expressing myself, really. Mm-hmm. So between helping your mom with wedding dresses when you were younger and now, what has happened that led to you starting your own fashion company? Um, so I have been working in fashion for the last 15 years, being in London. Uh, when, I was, um, when I was forced to claim asylum, I was, I was not allowed to work. So mm-hmm. during that time, and I was so stressed and, and obviously depression and everything, anxiety. And so I started um, buying fabric or getting fabric on uh, on credit from a friend of mine who owns a, a warehouse. And um, I then started making my own t-shirts and my own trousers because I didn't have money to buy any. And being someone who's very kind of like socially active on, on, in the gay community in the UK, I was like very proud of what I wear. Mm-hmm. And um, little that I know, people really, really liked some of the t-shirts I was wearing, some of the clothes I was wearing. And, and from then I said, oh, I make them. and um, and people started, oh, we'd like to buy one. How can we get one? Would you make one for me? And from there, this is where it's all started. And, and then at the end of it, when, when I was granted refugee status, I, 
I was asked to join this entrepreneur program because, you know, I have a brand. Technically, I have something. I have a product that I can actually really sell. And there's a nice story behind it. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's where Tim Khan was literally born. And they've, they've asked me if I want to use my own name. I said, yes, um, why not? Tim Khan is, um, is, is the name that I use in the UK. And um, it's how do I call it? My, 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 my gay community name. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, and then I've registered Tim Khan this year. Uh, launched it last year in November. And um, that's how it's all started. And so last week I spoke with Paisy Mahmoud on the podcast, who's another London-based fashion designer. And she cited London as being just very, very inspiring for anyone who's into fashion. So it sounds like you're definitely in the right place to be inspired by fashion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I work a lot with fabric, like seafood fabric. I mean, the gay community around in the UK, well, a lot of seafood, a lot of she and shines. And, and um, um, uh, so I, I work a lot with mixed fabric. So when mm-hmm. people see you wearing something which is very slightly outrageous and slightly different, mm-hmm. uh, people want to know what it is and where it's from. And, and you know, like my, my brand says, fabric has no gender. So I do a lot of clothes around if I make a dress for, for, for a girl, I would, make, I would use the same fabric and make a T-shirt so that the boyfriend can wear it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it, it's with the exact same fabric. And sometimes people think like, oh, my God, I didn't have thought that it looked that good. And mm-hmm. when actually wear it, it's like, oh, wow. Right. And so once you knew that you wanted to turn fashion into your career, how was it that you knew that you wanted to get into fabric having no gender and gender-fluid clothing? Um, we, we, we did a bit of work around it, like, what is it I really wanted? You know, when I decided to create my website, I really wanted to use some of the pronouns like him and her. Um, mm-hmm. But then if I use pronouns, instead of saying men and women or boys and girls, I wanted to use him and her. And mm-hmm. that I also could include uh, trans into it. But then I realized if I'm doing gender fluid, technically there should be no genders at all on my, on, on my website. It's really what the, the community is all about. So something that I've spoken with previous guests on this podcast about is the nuances of being a minority within a minority, for example, being gender fluid as a refugee. Mm -hmm. which is something that you're very openly an advocate for with your clothing. And one aspect of that nuance of being a minority within a minority is that there's very low visibility for any of the secondary minorities. So a gender fluid refugee, for example, or refugee who belongs to any other minority group can often be overlooked by people who only see them as a refugee or only see them as an asylum seeker and nothing else. They don't see anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. So how did that nuance and the importance of visibility for everyone play into your decision initially to make a non-binary fashion company as a refugee and how has it impacted your work as you've gone along with, with your business? I think uh, refugees in the UK, especially in London, um, accept it differently. Mm-hmm. They see it differently. So if you are in a different city, um, people... You know, the, the fact that refugees sometimes or asylum seekers tend to stay in this very small community and they find it difficult to accept, uh, you know, gender nonconformity or, or gender fluid um, uh, community. But in, in, the, in, in London, I, I have, I, I'm actually quite amazed that I have found them very accepted. Mm-hmm. So the next thing I want to talk about is the Lift the Ban campaign, which you're an active advocate for. Yeah. Um, so that started in 2019. And it's very personal to you because, as you've mentioned, 
you were detained in London and forced to claim asylum, during which you couldn't work. So yeah. could you explain first, just in your own words, what the Lift the Ban campaign is and then why it's so important? Um, so the Lift the Ban campaign is we're asking the government to lift the ban um, on what we call here shortage occupational list. So after a year, if somebody has applied for asylum and they have not received um, their refugee status, mm-hmm. they are entitled to apply for permission to work. Uh, so when you apply for permission to work, the government then um, will give you permission to work. and then But you can only take a certain job that is listed on that specific list that is called shortage occupational list. Mm. Now, all the jobs on those lists are anything that a refugee coming from a certain country will not be able to do. Um, mm-hmm. Everything are like over a very highly qualified PhD level or such as ballet dancer, as an example. Mm-hmm. So all the jobs there. So I, I have been in the UK, I have been an operations manager in a large business, fashion business in the, in the UK, and I couldn't find myself any job on that list. But I didn't know, so I have applied for many jobs and I have, I have had, I had few connections around and contacted them. And I was offered about three or four different positions in about three, four weeks of, being, uh, of obtaining my permission to work, including Ben and Jerry's who've offered me to be as a store manager for the flagship mm-hmm. UK. Um, and then it was declined when, we, when they did permission to work checks with the home office, it was declined. And they said that the job that I have applied for does it, is not part on the on the occupational list. So mm-hmm. in the end, I was not able to work, even though I had permission to work. Um, so at the end, um, and then when the, when this campaign came live, um, lift the ban, and I went into the first round table and we talked about it. I talked about my experience and why was it so important? Because when I received my permission to work, I was so excited. I was so happy that I was not able to work for two years mm-hmm. and I had permission to work so I could leave again. And then we did, I tried every single avenue. Um, people from Ben and Jerry's supported me so, so much. They even contacted the Home Office on my behalf. Um, we, we went to see MPs in the UK, um, but they did not want to give no special, uh, special circumstances. They mm-hmm. said that's the law. So this campaign is to ask the government to lift the ban on that shortage occupational list and allow people to work who when the, the home office has not been given them their uh, decisions within six months mm-hmm. uh, so yeah that's that's the lift the ban uh, so what i'm wondering is what it makes me think of is that especially in the u.s there's a negative stereotype and i think false stereotype against refugees that they either um that they're low skill and that they don't want to work Um, there's definitely a stigma that they're like free riding on the benefits of this country without working. Mm -hmm. But through this fight for the lift the ban campaign, uh, it's very, very obvious to see that refugees want to work. Right. And like they, they move to a new country because they want to get a new job. Refugees have skills that they want to be able to put to work. Um, so do you, I'm wondering if you think that the, the current ban that the UK has plays into that stereotype at all in the UK. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if, if, the, if the government here in the UK allow uh, refugees to work, it could bring about £100 million to, into the tax uh, revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, uh, it has, I mean, some people, some people say, so why are we allowing them to work? But at the same time, if they are here, for, some people are sitting on, on, on this, you know, instead of them um, being on benefit from the government, you know, 
they, they, they can pay their own housing, they can pay their own food. Right, yeah. And they will learn, they will also learn English. And when there's a lot of stigma, all refugees speak English. Mm-hmm. But while they're waiting, if we, if we give them that support, and refugees do want to work. They right. don't want to sit at home and getting stress. And, and as we all know, the, the, the weight of this asylum-seeking process is so intense that mm-hmm. it's insane. Yeah, and it sounds like this ban is definitely a barrier of entry to refugees who do want to work and be able to contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, so how is the campaign doing so far, this, this Lift the Ban campaign? It's doing great. I mean, we, 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 we hope, well, we think we can win this. And, uh, and, and I have myself been, um, had the privilege to go to, to the parliament to give a speech to MPs. I've managed to, to, to talk to different MPs from different um, uh, groups um, about my personal experience and why should we give people the right uh, to work. And, oh, That's what? amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's so great. Um, is there any petition or like donation portal or if there's anyone listening who wants to be able to support, is there any way for them to do so? Yeah, sure. so if anyone wants to get involved with the Leaf the Bank campaign, or want more information about it, they can go to refugee slash action.org.uk forward slash leave the ban, uh, where we have all the current information there. Perfect. And I can put that in the description of this episode and share it on social media and everything. So that's great. That sounds like a really good cause. So another thing that you have been in support of, and you mentioned this um, a little bit earlier, is that, so I know back in May, you said that you had donated 51 face masks to asylum seekers. And a little bit earlier, you just said that you're making scrubs. Um, and how has that been going? And, and why did you want to start doing that? Uh, the scrubs was, um, so I was at home. So the first week of second week of lockdown, um, and both my housemates has been away. So I have been alone at home. And, mm-hmm. um, and they're still away. That's been four months nearly. <laughs> and uh, so I've been going through this pandemic on my own at home. Going absolutely crazy. Um, so I then decided, a friend of mine contacted me, said, team, if you're at home and you're bored and there's, there's a group of servers um, in South London that's looking for, for, for people or designers or anyone who can stitch uh, for scrubs. And I said, yeah, very happy to. So I got involved with them uh, to, to make scrubs for the NHS during the, when, when the pandemic was on and the NHS we needed the support. So I did that for a couple of weeks and then I got a job at the London Ambulance. Um, mm-hmm. I was a supervisor for a PP warehouse. So I went to, to work there for nearly three months mm-hmm. and uh, and then uh, at the same time I was like oh on the second third week of lockdown I was like oh so why don't we just do some Facebook face masks so everyone was donating towards the NHS that were great causes which I'm absolutely up for but then I made me realize I went to buy a mask at uh, one of those N95 masks and the, the guy said to me it's three pound I was like this is the mask that you use once and you throw it away it's three right. It remade me straight away. It hit me kind of like, but what about an asylum seeker that cannot buy a mask? So what are they going to do? Are they going to just sit mm-hmm. Because they don't even have the money to buy enough food. How are they going to make a mask? So this is where I then realized, you know what? I'm going to start my little campaign. So I, I went through around all my fabric and put, put out all the fabric that I could remove, could make face masks or face covering, we would call it. Um, and I started making them. So I did about 30, 40 at once. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got so involved with it. I was working until three, four o'clock in the morning, trying to write the right pattern, trying to make sure it fits, it looks nice. It's, it's, it's... And some of my friends would not want to wear the mask. They say, oh, it looks so ugly, the one that you can buy. It looks like you're going to an operation theater. And I was like, that's true. And, um, 
And then I put it on and I start telling people if, if they would like to buy it, they said yes. And, uh, and, and within a week, the, you know, I started it and then a lot of people got involved. A lot of people were very, very happy. They thought it was a great cause. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I said, okay, so if somebody buy one, then I'll give one away to an asylum seeker. So that's how we started, you know, two and a half months ago. And so far we've, we've donated nearly over 70, nearly over 70 masks. That's amazing. And how do you um, get connected with the asylum seekers who receive the masks? So in, in London, there's a place called Barry House. That's where I was actually, myself, I had an accommodation there for four months. So mm-hmm. I okay. when I was asylum seeking. And, uh, and, what, and, and when I rang the home office and explained my situation, I said, listen, I wasn't even aware that I was, I, I was allowed to get uh, housing and £35 a week. So mm-hmm. it got to this point where I didn't know what to do. I was tired of carrots surfing from one friends to another um and then i was sent to barry house which is in which is a converted old church into a hostel and in that hostel there's 140 refugees uh, asylum seekers not refugees mm-hmm. in that hostel there's 140 asylum seekers in there so and then i had a friend who was living in manchester in another uh, asylum hostels uh, who also is in the process and i said listen i'll make some masks i'll send you guys some masks and and I'm very happy to do that. That's how it's all started. So every week or every other two weeks, I'll just go and drop whatever, you know, whatever I have sold. Mm-hmm. I'll just go and drop uh, the amount of masks and I chit chat to some of the uh, asylum seekers there if I get to see them because um, it's actually just quite nice. I, live, I lived in this accommodation for four months. Right, so of course. The pain in, in, in living there, the food is absolutely awful. Sometimes you don't eat because you just look at the food. You can't eat it. So... Mm. So I know the pain of living there, and I know yeah. the doesn't have it. The doesn't have a means to buy a face mask, and and I thought this is what I'm going to do. And um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very, for me personally, I'm so happy and so pleased. Somehow, um, because I'm severely asthmatic, I was not able to go and volunteer on the front line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somehow, for me, I have managed to find a way to 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 help. Yeah, that's so great. And I imagine, too, that when you visit these asylum hostels and that you're able to speak to the asylum seekers who are still there, you must be able to offer them hope about, you know, you used to be there and talking about your own journey getting out. So that's really great. Absolutely. I mean, I I met a couple of people last time we were there. Even the lady spoke Arabic. And and somehow we did manage to introduce ourselves, our Mm -hmm. name. She told me she's got three daughters and a son and how old they were. Oh, that's so great. And I told her I lived here for four, four, four months in very little Arabic that I know mm-hmm. and very, very, very little English that she knew. And we managed to convert us. And she, she said, thank you, thank you. Many times she said, thank you. And I was like, this is the reason why I'm here. Like, this is the reason why I do this, is, mm-hmm. is bringing, bringing a smile on an asylum seeker's face during this, um, during this process is something that is, it means so much for them. It means, it means to me, a lot when I was there, somebody was coming through the door, was bringing us some food. It means a lot when somebody was coming, was just having a chit chat with us. Mm-hmm. So, and when I was, I remember very well when I was living there, because I was there for like four months. I, so on, on at 6 p.m. when we had dinner, um, so I'd, I'd bring some kids together and I'd teach them a couple of words in English. And, um, and uh, because I knew the area of, of, of where is Dulwich a little bit, and I'll say, come on, let's go to the park. So I grabbed a group of them. And, and just for them to mingle, for them to talk and, and make friends mm-hmm. and then go around and, and have an hour park in the park. 
and even that that was uh, three years ago now, I still, I'm still friends with a lot of them. I go mm-hmm. and visit them. I've got there's a family that is from um, um, from uh, uh, Afghanistan. Um, uh, a whole family of mum, dad, son, daughter-in-law, and a, a, a granddaughter. So mm-hmm. they, I, I went and visit them when they live up north. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in Luton. Um, I, I went and visit them as well when I when I started working because then I was earning. I was able to. And mm-hmm. uh, when I went to their house, I remember. Oh my God. I was I wanted to cry because when I got there, they had food. The amount of food that they cooked, I was like, "This is the whole week of food I would eat." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Happy that I actually come and 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 see them because yeah, suddenly we have we've become family. We're not refugees between ourselves, but we have become family. Yeah, that must mean so much to them and to you as well, obviously. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and you, you mentioned um, you mentioned that because you're severely asthmatic, you weren't able to help on the front lines, but that you were really happy to be able to find a way in which you could help, which for you was making masks and scrubs for people because that is your specific skill set and capabilities. And another thing you've mentioned in the past was that you wanted to, you mentioned that you had friends who worked at a hospital who are obviously working very hard right now during this pandemic and that they sometimes hardly have time for lunch and that you wanted to start cooking biryani for them. So did that ever happen? No, unfortunately, that didn't happen because oh, I no. too much on. Yes, yeah. I have a lot of friends. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, being in the UK for 15 years, which I was 20 mm-hmm. years to study. Um, so I have made friends and, and many of our friends have different um, professionals. And so mm-hmm. some of them are nurses, some of them are doctors. Um, some of them are, are, are work in the NHS on, and, and, you know, on, on different professions. So... One of the things that I really wanted to do was actually cook for them because one of my best friends loves when I cook biryani. And he said, mm-hmm. do you know what? You can just bring us some biryani. I was like, I will do. <laughs> but yeah. I, I find myself making scrubs. I was working at the London Ambulance and then right. I was making masks. Suddenly I didn't even have time to sleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But it does bring up a good point, even though you haven't yet been able to actually cook the biryani, that between cooking biryani and visiting these asylum hostels and making face masks while also, you know, not to forget starting your own business and getting that up off the ground. um, You're doing so much to help. And and you've already mentioned the importance of not being discouraged if you can't help in some other way, like on the front lines, for example, but finding your own way in which you can help. So Mm -hmm. what can we learn from you about all these different things that you're doing to help not only how important it is but also how easy it can be to help others in small but meaningful ways i mean for me i've always said to a lot of people be kind it's it's very very important to be kind it's mm-hmm. very important to put ourselves in the shoes we somehow sometimes we say oh i oh i could completely understand but listen listen to the story of these people and really put yourself in the shoes of these people and mm-hmm. um, and ask yourself um if there's anything we can do, why don't we do it now? And um, we end up spending a lot of money on drinking. We're spending a lot of money on, on, on lots of um, you know, uh, things in, in our life. But mm-hmm. um, w- what, does, what would it make if we contribute £5 a week or we just even take a, an asylum seeker that we met uh, in mm-hmm. a hostel for a coffee? Um, and, and that would mean a lot to them. So Because it did mean for me a lot when people... I have friends now that are happily called very, very close friends that came to visit me because we met through refugees uh, groups or through refugee dinners 
but now that I know their parents, I, I, I even go and stay at their house if, during Christmas. Um, and, and they've been kind to me. They've been very supportive and, and means a lot um, mm -hmm. to, to, to others. It's definitely an accumulation of small actions. I think that at the end of the day, that's what's going to help people the most. And yeah. the fact that you mentioned being kind actually brings us perfectly into the question that I wrap up every episode with, which is, can you recall an act of kindness that someone has done for you that you think is exemplary of how we should be treating others? Um, my, um, uh, this is like, this is like the most emotional thing for me is my, I met uh, this couple, um, um, that, um, for a refugee dinner, uh, we, we clicked, we connected straight away and they wanted me to meet their cousin. Uh, I connected with him, like, as if we've known each other for years. Mm -hmm. uh, it was around August or something of the year. And, um, at Christmas, uh, they are a huge family. Um, and then they invited me to, they said, oh, we would like you to come and spend Christmas with us. Um, I didn't even know how big the family was. To be honest, when I went there, I was mesmerized. I was welcome as a normal, as if I had been friends with them for many years. I, I stayed there for three, day, three nights, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day. I met all their family. They were very happy to listen to my story. They, they were very humble. And, um, and now they've said to me, you don't, you know, this is your Christmas with us every year. We are your family. And um, they're the first one to always uh, be my first supporter, like uh, my first, um, um, they, like I, when I launched Team Khan, they came and bought dresses and, and skirts. And mm -hmm. uh, as soon as I launched the face mask, they were the first people to buy the face mask. And, and they, I'm always at the end of the phone and they're always at the end of the phone if I need them. Mm-hmm. So that was that. That was they. Yeah, they 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 made me feel so so. Um, they, they've taken a lot of stress off me during mm -hmm. this asylum process. Even they, they went to court with me. They went to um, to to see the lawyers with me because at some point I was unable to do it because mental health was hitting so hard. Um, I was unable to think. Um, where they took time off and and come with me to 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 my lawyers, and on the day of my appeal. Both both women was directors or directors and CEOs of a of Doc Society. They actually came with me and the team, whoever wanted to support me in that courtroom. There was about twenty five or thirty of us in my courtroom when I went. Oh to. wow! It was magical. It was magical, emotional. A day I would always remember until, mm -hmm. until I'm here. That's so sweet, and I love that. Um, when people think about helping others and even specifically helping refugees, I don't know if inviting them to celebrate Christmas would be the first thing to come to mind because especially mo a lot of refugees don't come from countries that celebrate Christmas, yeah. but it's definitely about so much more than just like that Christian holiday. And it's just about them opening their home, opening their hearts, supporting you in ways that wouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind, right? Like celebrating Christmas with you and always being at the end of the phone and going to your court date with you. Um, yeah. So that's really, really great. Absolutely. I mean, I am, I'm, I, the, how I started getting involved with refugee work is um, when I was living in Barry House at the beginning of my asylum process, mm -hmm. I, I met Ben Pollard, uh, who run, who's the CEO of uh, Local Welcome. And he asked me to, with, because I, as I have a good experience around uh, operations and, and managing um, um, uh, the backup house, so he asked me to come and volunteer. And I said, very happy to. Um, I went and volunteered for about two years and I became, I, I used to sit on their board of um, advisors uh, to, for, for, for the organization. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so what they do, they bring communities and refugees and asylum seekers together on a table. So on a round table, you cook and you, at the end of an hour, you've made a meal. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just doing that is great because, you know, you, you get free, ref, free asylum seekers on the table. You have free members from the community on the table. You have a set of questions, you chit chat. And at the end of an hour, you've made a meal. Yeah, that's so awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, team. Thank you for sharing all these stories and for answering all the questions and everything. Um, I wish you the best of luck with your business and all of your endeavors with helping people moving forward. Thank you so much for having me. An absolute pleasure to, to, to have talked to you. That was Epimonia's Safer Room podcast with Team Khan. The music in this podcast was produced and performed by Elvis J, a refugee from Malawi now living in the U.S., and the cover art was designed and submitted by Samuel Nasabamana, a Congolese refugee now living in Rwanda, so thank you to the both of them. This week's episode was sponsored by We Hire Refugees, a community of hundreds of businesses across the U.S. who are committed to supporting refugee resettlement and access to dignified jobs. If you represent a company or know someone who does and would like to add that company to the list, you can do that at wehirerefugees.org. Once again, you guys can visit our website, epimonia.com, or visit us at epimoniamn on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to learn more and support the cause. Thank you for listening.